this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to the prophecy of Hosea. Now, don't be ashamed to have to look at the table of contents. These are what are called the minor prophets, and it's not because they're insignificant or because they were under the age of 18. It's just that they were shorter prophecies um, than some of the other comparative, what we call major prophets, which were just longer. Um, and so that's an important distinction to make, that, that there's nothing minor about what they have to say. And so this morning, we're going to be in Hosea. And so to kind of set the stage, though, for these next four weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the, the minor prophets. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you, Hosea is, is a longer prophecy of the minor prophets. And so we're just going to do one sermon, kind of a, a big picture of Hosea. Now, in the weekly email that you should be receiving, if not, please uh, reach out to us. You can sign up at the desk um, in, the, in the foyer um, if you would like to start receiving that weekly email. But in preparing for worship, there was a, a little link to uh, something called the Bible Project. And it's about a seven-minute video, well worth your time to be able to get a big picture of Hosea. And so we're going to do a little bit more of a, of a deep dive in a couple of verses, but that's a great overview of the entire prophecy. And at that website, you can find other great summaries of different biblical books um, and themes in the Bible. So I encourage you just you know, to consider that as a resource as you're preparing for worship and as you are worshiping at home each week. But it set the stage for going back in Hosea and to understand kind of the role of prophets. Because prophets in their day were not often well-received. I mean, in fact, they were the kind of guy that if you were in a huddle in the hall at the water cooler and you saw a prophet coming, it was time to go back to work, you know, like to, you know, just kind of start, you know, people were just kind of doing the nervous look around. Let me find something else to do because what this guy's going to have to say is going to be difficult. And, and he keeps saying the same thing over and over. It's like he just won't let up. And, and Hosea is no different. Hosea was a prophet in his day and his prophecy period is about 60 years, uh, probably 66 years possibly. And so it's a long time of him saying pretty similar things to the people of God. And often the prophet was confronting them about the things that they were doing wrong. So that's important for us to understand that they had a role to play, but that there was an ultimate end to that. But to really catch the description of what the role was of a prophet, we have to understand the heart of the father. And so to understand the heart of the Father, I just want to read a passage from Hebrews chapter 12 to you. To understand the, the, the unchanging heart of our Father and why it was that he used prophets over 2,700 years ago and why prophecy from God's Word still is so relevant today from the heart of our Father. He, hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. It says this, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. And, and again, God was using the, the prophets to reprove his people, his sons, if you will. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son since son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, in other words, if there weren't any prophets, if there weren't anybody exhorting or rebuking you, which all received, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. 
shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline, catch this, seems enjoyable at the time, amen? But painful. But later on, however, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it's understanding the heart of the Father and how he's always dealing with us in love. He's dealing with his people in love, but he is not this passive father who says, I love you enough to say nothing. I love you enough to never confront when you're going the wrong way. I love you enough to not get not meddle in your business. No, he loves us enough to says, this is the way you ought not to go, and this is the way you should go. He loves us enough to, to send his son that we might see fully revealed what a life is to be. But then more than that, he loves us so much that then he pours his Holy Spirit into us that we might have within us God. God enabling us to glorify God. God at work in, in us that we might live a life of holiness, that we might experience the holiness that he brings, touching this body and then making it sacred and occupying it. That's the love of this father to whose word we now turn back in Hosea. And in Hosea, of all that I want to read to give us understanding, I want to go to the very last verse. And so if you turn to Hosea chapter 14, Verse 9, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word because this is a summary verse. This is a moment of stepping back and saying, of all that you're going to hear, here's the intention. So hear the Word of the Lord. Let whoever is wise understand these things, the things we will consider this morning from Hosea. And whoever is insightful, recognize them for the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that through the preaching of your word from Hosea, God, that you would speak, and you would speak with authority, and Lord, that your Holy Spirit would descend and fill us, that we might be rightly in awe of you and worship you, and Lord, that at the end of the day, you would receive the glory because the way you and your grace did it was through your word. And in a way that people would look at and say, it's crazy that something so old could be so relevant. But Lord, you get the glory for that, of just how timely and relevant your word is for where we are today. So Lord, we ask for your grace. We ask that you would speak authoritatively in our lives and that we would taste of your love for us as children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, as we turn through the prophecy of Hosea, looking at several major aspects of what's going on here, I want to give you a little bit of the context. Um, Hosea started his ministry around 750 BC, primarily speaking to Israel. Um, Judah would certainly benefit from his ministry, but primarily we see Israel as his audience, and it, his ministry lasted about 66 years. This period of time from about 750 B.C. 
was one of the most turbulent and trying times in the history of Israel prior to their captivity, where they would ultimately go into exile. Now, Hosea, his name is from the same verb as Joshua or Jesus, which means to save or to deliver. And that's important to understand because there's a lot in the name. That, that why God is sending this prophet named Hosea is because he's wanting to deliver. He's wanting to save his people. He's wanting to lead them back to him and to a faithful relationship to him. But in the course of doing that, he is confronting the ways that they have gone their own way. What he's revealing is their brokenness. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. I want to frame this sermon kind of in light of some of the language that we've been using to understand the gospel. Because the gospel applies to all of life. Uh, The gospel is a way that we then look at the scriptures and understand what the big picture is. And so when we look at Hosea, we get a fresh glimpse of some of the broken aspects, the ways that they were going that God did not intend. It was not his design. And so I want us to look at these ways and to see them, understanding that, that Israel was struggling with different things that then when we come to 2021 and we as the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, or as Paul says at the end of Galatians, to the Israel of God, to kind of understand our identity as the people of God in relationship to this, to this former period of time, to understand that just as they were tempted in certain ways, so we are going to be tempted in certain ways. And it's good to be able to look back on the example that we see unfold again and again in the scriptures in the Old Testament, even though that that history is 2,750 years old, and to say, but the temptation is still here today. Uh, we, we kind of bend in the same way if left to our own devices when we stop seeking the Lord when our hearts are far from him and are not anchored to his word and seeking his face through his word. So what were some of the aspects of the brokenness that we see in Israel? Well, I want you to first turn to chapter 7, verse 8. And we're going to be flipping around, so just kind of get ready to work those fingers as we kind of flip back and forth and to see some things. And what we see, first of all, with Israel is that there was a political idolatry a political idolatry that was taking place in Israel. Now, again, we're speaking of 2,750 years ago of a political idolatry. And let me show it to you in the Word to to consider kind of the historical format of this. Verse 8, Ephraim, which is another word or another title for Israel, Ephraim has allowed himself to get mixed up with the nations. Ephraim is unturned bread baked on a griddle. And then go down to verse 11. So Ephraim has become like a silly, senseless dove. They call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. And in those few words, what we see, and then we see other evidence of it throughout the prophecies, is that Israel was allowing herself or allowing himself to begin to form alliances with other nations that God had clearly said, you're not to have these alliances. These are not going to be relationships that are going to protect you, that are going to provide for you, that are going to, to, to give you the security, the peace, the shalom of God that, that you're longing for. You're seeking it with people who are not my people. You're seeking it with nations that are, are not my people. Now, 
Let me just go ahead and, and, and make a, a, a little application here for us today. I think that what we can often find ourselves thinking, and, and, and I just want to test this moment with you. If your first thought was in thinking about these political alliances and thinking about Egypt and Assyria, and you were like, well, how does that apply today? Maybe that means that America doesn't need to have such a dependence on China then what we've subtly done in that sort of a quick application is we have taken the word Israel and inserted the word the United States. And the result of that sort of a, of a connection of thinking, a sequence, that, that now the United States of America is the Israel of God, is then to step into the Bible and begin to make an application for the United States of America that was intended very clearly for the church of Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's significant because what it results in is an idolatry that can take us further and further away from God. And what the result is, is then more and more fighting within the church of God. And so I bring that to the surface in this moment to say that what we need to be careful of is the people of God today, 2021, First Baptist New Orleans, as well as other churches. This is not just an indictment for First Baptist New Orleans. This is something that's going on within our convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as among other evangelical churches that are not Southern Baptist, is a lot of infighting over politics. And what can subtly happen here in the United States and for us as Christian believers is we can allow ourselves to begin to align so firmly with a political party, whether that party be the Democratic Party, whether that party be the Republican Party. And what it can cause us to do is to begin to look at one another as the enemy within the church. What it can allow us to do is exactly what was happening in Israel 2,750 years ago of looking to a political party to be our savior. That's the real threat. That's what can happen very subtly when we begin to make alliances that were not intended. Now, is that to say that there's no room for politics in the life of any believer? No. No, there were, there were always Israelites who held offices, who had roles to play. We see this throughout the history of the people of God. But there was one God. And it was when the one God was forsaken for other alliances that Israel experienced its trouble. And it's today in the church of Jesus Christ when we choose a party or a nation over God that we're going to have problems. And we need to be mindful of that. And we need to return to God together. Every person in the room, myself included, we, according to God's word, are being called back to God. He's calling us back to himself because he has a good future for us. And this is the good news. This is our hope. He has filled us with his Holy Spirit. And so he's going to do it. He's going to bring about the unity that only his spirit can accomplish. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. We can have full assurance that even though we look at the state of things today and we say, I don't know. I don't know if there's hope. I don't know if we have a good future. And come to the word and say, there is a certain hope. 
that we will be one, we will be united, we will persevere because he who is faithful will do it. That's the assurance of his word is that he is faithful so we can rest secure. And that was the truth that God was calling them back to in his word 2,750 years ago is I am faithful, but he's confronting them about their faithlessness, their unfaithfulness to him. And so let that just, that fresh word from 2,750 years ago be relevant to us today to bring about the unity that God desires in his body where we are together submitting our lives to Jesus Christ. Second, what we see in God's word is empty worship. Again, in chapter seven, verse 14, we see this. They, they do not cry to me from their hearts, rather they wail on their beds. You ever had that night? where you were like, oh, oh God, oh, what am I going to do about this situation, this, this, this choice I made, this thing I did, and oh, you know, like, and you're, and you're wailing, and, and, and the name of God is on your tongue in that moment because of this choice, but really all you're wanting is just for it to go away. You're not really wanting to return to God. You're just wanting this nightmare that possibly your own choices have created to, to go away. So what I'm not speaking of is when, when suddenly there's a loss in your life. Uh, that, that's a night for wailing. That's a night for tears. There's, there's a mourning that takes place and is right and is fitting. But I'm talking about when you have made choices that you now are receiving the consequences of broken relationships, broken trust, financial disaster. I mean, like all of these things and you're wailing, but you're not returning. That's what he's confronting them about back here, back 2,750 years ago that is still relevant for us today when we continue to make our own choices to lead to destruction. What we see in chapter six, verse six is this. He says, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, what that tells us is that they were still, to put it in modern vernacular, going to church on Sunday. They were still going through the motions of what would be considered worship. And God sees that worship and he says to them, I desire faithful love, not sacrifice. In other words, they're bringing things to God. But then he says, I want you to know me to know my character, to know my holiness, to know my love, to know my faithfulness, to know my justice, my worth, rather than burnt offerings. I mean, God is pleading with them saying, I'm not just wanting your animals. But today, I'm not just wanting your money. God's not just this God who's like, you better give me something. You better give me something. And then us, come and gather and we, we give him something. I was at least there. I put something in the plate and God, you should be pacified. You should be satisfied now. I, I, I gave you something. They were giving him something, but they weren't giving him their hearts. And he indicted them for that reality. And he indicts us again today with that same reality that if we are going through empty worship where we are showing up and maybe we are giving we need to be reminded he's looking at our hearts. Those things are not bad. 
I'm not discouraging you from regular worship. I'm not discouraging you from giving and worship to the Lord, but I am encouraging you to check yourself. Am I also giving him my heart? Is my affection being given to him? Am I wanting God more than I'm wanting the other things of this world? Because God sees that. And to you and to me, he says, that's what I most want. Because he knows that when he has your heart, that when he asks you to, to give or to serve or to go, you'll go when he has your heart. But then finally, there's this one last indictment that he gives in chapter 13, verse 6. And this perhaps is one of the greatest warnings that is as relevant to us today as it was to them. Hear the word of the Lord. When they had pasture, they became satisfied. In other words, they had plenty to eat. They were satisfied and their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. You know, there's a lot of weeks that are easy, right? Where you go, you go so hard. And there's so many commitments and so many things and, and all these things that if you were honest and somebody asked, was your mind on God? Was your, was your heart on God? Did you, did you ponder anew what the Almighty can do? If you were honest, you would say, it's not that I, I don't believe in him. I just, I just forgot. I mean, I, it, just, it just wasn't on my mind. When they had pasture, when they became satisfied, they were satisfied and their hearts became proud. Pride. Pride. We see pride at work at us and working against the Spirit of God within us at all times. And it manifests here in just the simplicity of forgetting. But don't miss the danger of that. Don't forget the danger of forgetting. You see, if you turn back further into the Old Testament, you see this call in these intentional efforts to remember the Lord. I mean, the people of God were to be so intentional in remembering the Lord that they were putting Scripture even on their doorways so that as they went in and out on a daily basis, they were being reminded of the Lord, that they were supposed to be talking about it in the mornings when they got up. When they went to bed at night, they were supposed to be communicating with one another. In church family, we have the responsibility now today to be the people of God who communicate with one another about what God is doing in our lives. I love when I have the chance to sit down with, with one of our members, Johnny Bono, and to be able to communicate with him because often when I'm sitting with Johnny, one of the first things that comes out of his mouth is an opportunity that he had to be able to share the gospel with someone recently. Be able to, to be able to talk about a, a spiritual conversation or a situation that he's asking for me to join him in praying about for a coworker or a neighbor or someone like that. He, he's constantly encouraging me, encouraging me to remember the Lord and to remember that the Lord is at work all around me if I will just lift my eyes and remember that he's at work. That's an encouragement to my soul, but that's not to be reserved for one outgoing member. That's us. That's who we're to be. We're to be people who are speaking freely about what God is doing, reminding one another, speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, encouraging one another, letting these things be fresh on our lips. Because when they're not, we drift in pride 
becomes to work in our heart. But you know, the most compelling image that's given in Hosea is this, back in chapters 1 and 2. And the image here that's, that's so heart-wrenching is that there's this call to Hosea to marry a woman who would ultimately be unfaithful to him, a woman named Gomer. And, and, and that's exactly what happens. Gomer is, is unfaithful, and she has these, these children out of the, the marriage relationship. But the marriage, and we talked about this last week, even talking about marrying the mother of Jesus and how Mary was illustrating something. That's exactly what is taking place here. This marriage is illustrating the faithfulness of God as a husband, but the unfaithfulness of Israel as a wife. And so as he confronts this, he, he communicates how, how, how devastating it is for the relationship and how devastating it is for the children. But what he communicates in that story is his redeeming love. You see, I want you to, to, to get the mental picture here. I want you to imagine that, that and I'm going to flip it so that, so that it's me who is unfaithful and Cole, my wife, is the faithful one in this story. So we've been married. We'll be married for 18 years coming this summer. And so after 18 years of, of faithful, joy-filled marriage, all of a sudden I begin to be unfaithful to her. And I find a new relationship with another woman and I just move out. I move out of the house, I leave the kids with Cole, and, and I go and I move in with this other woman. We, we live not far from, from where I used to live. I'm still in New Orleans, and I'm going through life now with this new woman and this new relationship, and I'm, and I'm happy. I'm enjoying this new relationship. I'm enjoying um, the, the physical parts of it, but also the emotional. I'm, I'm enjoying just the new conversations and all of these things. And, and this person is also, you know, helping to provide for me. Uh, this person's, you know, got, got a great job. And so I'm receiving things, you know, like going places I didn't go before. And, and man, I'm just really, really enjoying this new relationship. And then one day, Cole, who has been faithfully praying for me, who has not served up the divorce papers, who has been praying for me and hoping and being faithful in our relationship, even though I've been faithless, one day she gets a box together and she goes around the house and she gets my favorite thing. She, she knows my favorite food. And so she gets the ingredients for that favorite meal and she puts it in the box. And, and she knows how much I love the saints. And so she goes and gets me a, a new hat and puts a new a saint's hat in there. And, and she fills this box with all these things that I love. And then she goes to the house where I'm now living with another woman. And she brings it and she knocks on the door. And the woman, this, this mistress, opens the door and knows immediately who Cole is. And Cole says, will you give this to Chad? She takes the box. She says, okay. Closes the door. I'm in the back. She comes in and says, hey, I got you some stuff. And I come to the box and I look up at this mistress and I say, you got all this for me? And she says, you know, I love you. 
And then I say, I knew you loved me. I knew it, and I knew you knew me. Thank you. Thank you that you did all these things for me, not realizing that it was my wife, my faithful wife, who had come and given the things that most communicated love to me. She will pursue her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. And she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better than, for me than now. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, I will take away my wool linen, which were to cover her nakedness. God is communicating in his word through this powerful illustration that he continued to be faithful to Israel, but she believed that that provision was from Egypt. She believed that provision was from Assyria. She believed in the pride of her own heart that she was getting these things, not realizing it was God all alone, all along. And now God, God was going to begin to take these things back. And these were the days of warning. These were the days that preceded the darkest days of exile and of being taken away from the land and of death and hardship unspeakable. This was God, faithful God, coming and knocking on the door in love. And that was meant to bring the people of God back, to bring them back to the one who first loved them. Because what we see clearly throughout all of Hosea, through these illustrations of brokenness and this illustration of an unfaithful marriage, what we see is God's design for Israel is this. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. This was his design, a faithful marriage, a faithful bond between his people and their God. And look at the benefits of this relationship and consider what we today, 2021, in New Orleans are longing for. Justice, righteousness, love, compassion. I mean, this is what we're longing for. We want to see these things. But when we begin to try to seek it and find it in some other relationship than through God, a God who then brings about justice and compassion and love and faithfulness and righteousness through us to the good of all people. That, that it shoots out from here and it changes this community and this city. That, that it's poured in here and it goes out everywhere. Into our homes and into our workplaces and into our neighborhoods. It's all in this design of a faithful love that God is looking. But then in verse 6 of chapter 6, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We see him calling us in his grace to a faithful love. Both experience chapter 2 from him to us 
and then a faithful love that he is calling us to live toward him in faithful relationship. But we've missed it, haven't we? We've not been faithful. If we're honest this morning, what this ought to lead us to, and that what it was meant to lead the people of God to in their day was to a time of acknowledging, God, we've not been faithful. We, we have made alliances. We have made other relationships, whether it's a political alliance, whether it's just falling in love with our stuff because we had pasture, whether it's that pride in our heart that just makes us think, you know, well, I'll only ask for God if I can't do it. All of those things have come in and made our relationships with one another and with God unfruitful, unfaithful, and he's calling us back. But, but gosh, how do we right the wrongs? Well, let me tell you, there's good news in Hosea and there's good news in Jesus Christ because Hosea ultimately is pointing to Jesus. So I want you to see how even in Hosea, 750 years before Jesus would come, there were all of these road signs being extended and pointing to one day an ultimate salvation that would take place. I want you to see, number one, the promise of grace. I want you to turn over to chapter 1, verse 10. So after, after God has already told Hosea to marry this woman who's going to be unfaithful to him, she's already had a few children, most likely out of wedlock, she has three, maybe the first one is, is Hosea's, but then the second two, there's some suspicion. There, there's not this clarity about their relationship with, with who's dad. But then notice that that's illustrating the unfaithfulness of Israel, that she's gone astray. She's now having the fruit of this, these other relationships. Notice what he says in verse 10, yet, yet. Yet the number of Israelites will be like the sand of the sea. That is hearkening back to the promise extended to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 22, a promise ultimately fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. He goes on, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you're not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. How is that possible? And the Judeans and Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land. The days of Jezreel will be great. Call your brothers, my people, and your sisters compassion. And we'll look at another verse in a moment that makes clear how ultimately Christ has brought that about. But don't miss the word yet. Yet, because another word would be but. And one of my favorite words in the New Testament is this, that though you were dead in your sins, Christ died for you, but in Ephesians, it says this, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. And that's the message of Hosea in Hosea chapter one, is God is saying, you've been unfaithful, you have been sinful, yet Yet I will be faithful to my promise that I made to Abraham in grace and that he believed in faith that will ultimately be fulfilled in my son, Jesus Christ. So the same message of salvation that was extended to them is extended to you. But God, though you and I have been unfaithful, but God who is rich in mercy is still pouring out his grace on us through Jesus Christ. So we see, first of all, the promise of grace. Second, we see the promise of the resurrection. 
Look at chapter six, verse two. He will revive us after two days. And on the third day, he will raise us up so that we can live in his presence. I can't read those verses as one who, who believes in Jesus Christ, who understands the gospel that on the third day, he was resurrected and to understand the significance of that resurrection, that I was raised with him to not be able to look at those words and ultimately see their fulfillment in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But to go further than that, Look over at chapter 13, verse 14. And what he says here is, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. That is the grave. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. If those verses sound familiar, it's because they're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, where we read this, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss the picture. Paul is quoting Hosea. Hundreds, thousands, I mean, over 750 years later to communicate that Christ Jesus has brought about this, ults, this ultimate ransoming of our lives, this ultimate defeat over sin and death. And it has only come about in Jesus Christ. But then we, we see the promise of grace. We see the promise of resurrection. But then thirdly, we see the promise for all nations. Chapter 2, verse 23. It says, I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on Lo Ruamah. And I will say to Lo Ami, you are my people, and he, will, and, we, and he will say, you are my God. The reference there is to a people who've been born in adultery, a, a, a people who, have, who are basically the fruit of unfaithfulness, who are distant from God, who are not his people. He, he looks at them and says, I'm gonna look on those that I've not had compassion on, and I'm going to call them, I have compassion. And those that he formerly looked on that were not children of God, he's gonna look on and say, you are now my sons. And what we see in the New Testament is Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, saying the, almost the same exact words. He says to us, the people of God, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You had not received mercy or compassion, but now you have received mercy. How did these things take place? All of these things have taken place only and in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The promises are fulfilled in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, Hosea 11 verse 1 says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, there's a historical context to this. We can look back and see the exodus where Israel came out. But Matthew, the writer of the first gospel in chapter two, verse 15, he uses the exact verse to communicate how when, when Jesus went into Egypt and then came back, that that was the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this reality. And that reality being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, verse 14 where it says, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your stained compassion? It's hidden from my eyes. 
We then read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6, through 6, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then Revelation verse 5 I mean, chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That song that we were singing earlier, joining in heaven and, and saying, who is worthy? The one who is worthy is the one who was slain. The one who ransomed by his blood people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That is the God whom we serve. And so as we consider a right orientation as the people of God for today, we orient ourselves to Jesus Christ. And we remember that his blood was shed for the people of all nations. And so we, to be rightly aligned, will be a church concerned with making disciples of all nations. This weekend, we were supposed to have some additional missionaries in to be able to be with us this morning. Their family came down with strep throat, and so they weren't able to make the trip. But there's going to be more and more of a steady flow of those relationships with international missionaries who specifically are living in places where the name of Jesus is not known. Some of you who are in Bible study, I was able to bring around the Robichaux family to you a couple of weeks ago to introduce you to them. There are no known believers where they live, zero. There is not one single Christian, if you were to walk up and share the gospel with someone where they live in North Africa, that person would have no idea what you were talking about. They've never heard the gospel message of Jesus. The only exposure they have to Jesus are a few references in the Quran. And that is it, that's their only understanding of Jesus. They have no understanding of the Bible. And so they're there and they're laboring in order to communicate the truth of God's word to a people who've never heard. And how can they believe if they've never heard? And how will they go if they're not sent? And we, we are called to be that sending church. We're to be that partnering church. We're to be that praying church. We're to be that church that even among our, our own members, there might be those that are called to go that then we send out. Not just partnering with existing missionaries, but sending out new missionaries into the mission field to make disciples of all nations because if there's any central figure given, it's this, it's this portrait of Jesus being worshiped by the people of all nations. And so to that end, we labor. And I find that as I set my, my hand to that plow and I labor with brothers and sisters, that the things that formerly divided us, the things that were being confronted here, the political division, the, 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 the trappings of wealth, all of these things, that the empty worship. No, when we put our hands to that plow and we start to labor together, that is what unites us. We start going in the same direction and we're pulling all in the same way. Those things that we allow to consume us and to make us believe the lie that we are enemies to one another, those things fall away as we set our eyes centrally on Jesus and we put our hands to the plow of making him known. Because the Bible is so clear that there is brokenness. And we've talked about it today in God's word. There's this brokenness that is in our world and it's in us. Jesus communicated in Mark chapter seven 
that it's not just what goes into the body that defiles it and makes it unclean. It is what comes out of the heart. Every one of our hearts, every one of our hearts is not the way that God intended for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have a broken heart, but that wasn't God's design. When he created this world, he created it good, very good. That included people, their relationship with God, their relationship with one another. But then man went his own way. God said, this is the way, walk in it. And man said, no, I think I'll walk this way and did his own thing. And we've been doing it ever since. Sin entered into the world. And as much as we try to get back to God on our own, we can't. But God did something, and that's what we have just seen in this word. It was a promise made thousands of years ago, reiterated 750 years before it would be fulfilled, that he would send Jesus, who would live with us, who would be among us, but would not be like us in sin. His heart was as God intended. And that's why his life was so extraordinary and why his ministry was so powerful. But at the end of that extraordinary life, he died for you and me to ransom us. He paid the price for our sin. Died on the cross, was buried in a tomb. But on the third day, just as Hosea proclaimed 750 years before, he rose. And in his resurrection, we rise. And we can believe with confidence that death has been defeated. We can sing chapter 13 of Hosea that is reiterated or resung in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then he ascended into heaven with the promise that one day he will return. And there is the promise that if we will return to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, that we will be saved. And so I encourage you, if you're here today and you have never given your life to Jesus, it's just being honest that you're broken. It's just saying, God, I need to be saved. And those people in Hosea's day that did that experienced a freshness, a newness, a return to God that was right. But today you receive even something better. You receive the gift of God himself, him himself by his Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within you so that it can truly be said of you, the old is gone, the new has come. It's no longer you that live, but Christ who lives within you. And then you begin to grow in these incredible God-glorifying ways into the man or the woman that God intended you to be. And so what's keeping you from turning from your sin and trusting and following Jesus today? And listen, Every person in this room who says, I know that, I know the three circles, I, I, know, I know the sequence. That, what's keeping you from turning from your sin and trusting and following Jesus today? You see, that message of Hosea was to the people of God. It was not to the Babylonians. It was not to the Ninevites. It was not to Assyria. No, it was to the people of God. And today, there may be sin in your heart. There may be things that you've done. I encourage you. Confess that sin to God today. Turn and walk in faith in Jesus. See, the gospel applies to all of life. Let it apply to you in this moment. Will you stand with me as we have a moment of response through song? I'll be here to pray if anyone would like to come forward in this moment. I'm here to serve you. Father, I pray that in these moments of worshiping you in song, that you would drive deep the truth of your word from Hosea, that we might fix our eyes on Jesus and walk in his ways. You respond now as God leads.